This is an ABC podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. There are some politicians who define an age. Rightly or wrongly, they somehow manage to both reflect a growing public feeling while also playing a significant part in resetting the agenda. Ronald Reagan, the 40th President of the United States, was one such politician. And here's perhaps his most seminal message. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. The neoliberalism that Reagan helped embed in the US psyche soon became the norm and has dominated Western politics ever since. A large part of that narrative has been to endlessly talk down the value and competency of public service and endlessly demand reform. But to what end? This has been going on for decades. Part of what we're challenged with now is the accumulative consequences, the legacies and some of the unintended consequences of some of those reform agendas. The public has always seen the public servants as either fat cats or shiny bums or, or whatever. But I'm not sure that that way of looking at it is what the public really thinks. Calls to re-embrace the spirit of public service and to make meaningful changes to the way our civil bureaucracies operate. That's our topic today. Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense. Now, by public services, we're talking about two things, really the various departments of government that exist, like education and health, as well as the essential services funded from the public purse, utilities and public housing, for example. Let's start on the international stage with a global campaign called The Future is Public. Already now, 1.6 billion people live in inadequate housing. Private health services are six times more expensive than public ones, and the planet is heating up faster and faster. The market It's actually been very frustrating how dominant it's been, how pervasive the neoliberal narrative has been, and even how subtle in a way that so much of it is internalized and taught at so many different levels and absorbed and accepted and taken for granted to the point where that even in casual conversations, there's positions that people will take and not even make the connection between the neoliberal narrative, that it just became the way of life. Ashina Mitsumi, a human rights lawyer in Kenya, who's also the Africa representative for the Global Initiative for Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. This belief that governments are unable to deliver public services, that they are inherently inefficient, and the only way to save these public services is to hand them over to the market. And this approach was really advocated for and pushed for by global economic actors. It was pretty much imposed on a lot of countries through the conditionalities that were put on the funds that they could access, particularly in Africa, for example. And this did lead to a lot of governments rolling back their involvement, first in directly providing public services, but also in regulating public services because the belief was that the market could self-regulate. But the evidence has increasingly shown that this approach doesn't work, especially for the fulfillment of human rights. And a lot of public services are closely tied to a lot of human rights. So the right to health, for instance, the right to education, where 
governments were increasingly leaving the education space to commercial private actors, scaling down their involvement, employing fewer teachers, not constructing more schools, scaling down even their regulation of the private actors in education, in healthcare. There was a trend being noticed of increasingly problematic practices where fewer people were able to access these services. They became more expensive. The quality went down. And this was seen across the different public services. Now, the Future is Public campaign has the support of almost 200 civil society organisations, trade unions, research institutes and non-profits. And in some ways, according to Ashina Mitsumi, this new push to rewrite the narrative around public service is also a child of the pandemic. There's been evidence collected across Europe, but also across Africa, for example, of the challenges that come into play when public services are left to private hands, especially now with the COVID-19 pandemic, for instance. A comparative analysis was done in Italy between two cities in Italy, one that relied more on public services and a publicly organized response to the pandemic, and another city that had already left their healthcare services to the private sector and how stark the difference is in Italy in terms of the effectiveness of the response. Similarly, in Africa, research has been done in Kenya and in Nigeria, for instance, and how the commercialization of the healthcare services undermined the state's capacity to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic effectively. So it's a problem that cuts across all over the world, actually. The evidence comes from all over the world, but also the push to reclaim public services is also all over the world. So we have examples from Canada, for instance, where in transport, in waste management, in telecommunications, in water, in education, there are examples from different provinces where these services were privatized and it didn't work. And there have been efforts to remunicipalize or return them into public hands and how these efforts have actually proved more successful. From what we've seen in the pandemic, it's the governments that have the capacity, well, not necessarily the governments, but the public and the communities that have the capacity to organize, that have the resources required to ensure that everybody can be taken care of, that nobody is left behind. The market just can't do it. So I think there's potential for a really significant turning point, but we have to make the most of it in this moment. Ashina Mitsumi from the global campaign, The Future is Public. And a timely reminder that June 23rd each year is designated as United Nations Public Service Day. From the global to the domestic now, and Australia has the potential to become an interesting test case for how to break with the neoliberal tradition, at least where government services and government employment is concerned. So friends, Australians have chosen. Australians have chosen and they have chosen change. With a federal election now passed and a new administration in Canberra, there are expectations in some quarters that meaningful reform of the public service is possible. So where is that likely to happen? Well, one area already targeted for review is the practice of outsourcing government work to private consultancies, a practice that ballooned under the previous Conservative government. 
It's estimated that more than $1.2 billion has been paid annually to management consultants over the past few years. James Riley is the editorial director of the independent tech publication Innovation Oz, and he's been tracking the trend. Consultants absolutely have their place. And the advantage of using an outside consultant is that you're bringing in fresh ideas, fresh thinking, and very often, you know, senior executives who've worked on similar projects elsewhere in the world and bring in world's best practice. So, you know, that's to paint a rosy picture of it. The dangers, I guess, you know, absolutely there is the danger of hollowing out the public service. What we've seen in recent years is inverted commas, all the interesting work being outsourced and uh, the grind being left to the public servants. So, you know, there's a real battle right now for the skills and top talent. Now, if all the interesting work is going off to the private sector, then why would you join the public service? There was a time when joining PM&C or Treasury or finance, uh, you know, held great cachet, but it's harder for them to compete now. Does it make the accountability on government projects more complicated? Well, firstly, there's an accountability issue around policy formation. Even the, the research work that gets done, we end up in a position where senior public servants will outsource effectively the policy thinking around programs as they're developed. And it's more difficult to dive into the entrails of how policies are developed if you've outsourced that work. What do you think we can expect or what's been signalled as the direction that this new government will take in terms of reassessing the public service and its performance? Look, they want to scrap the APS staffing cap. They think they can save $3 billion over four years by cutting government spending on contractors and consultants. Easy to say, hard to do. It's one of those things. I think the APS, the public service, has uh, sustained some long-term damage over the last decade or so simply because of those staffing cuts and the hollowing out through the use of consultants and outsourcers. Any substantial change to the way the public service operates at the moment is still going to be costly, isn't it? Even if you're decreasing the use of external consultants to build up the skills base, the knowledge base within the public service, the training, that's that's all going to take money. That's, that's not something that um, will just automatically happen, is it? Oh, no, that's exactly right. You've got contractors who work sometimes for these big consulting houses sitting next to a public servant and earning considerably more than that public servant, but doing exactly the same task. So I don't know if they're going to jump at the chance to come back in-house. You know, there is a mountain to climb in terms of doing that base level reskilling in areas that have been run of business for government that has gradually been given to consultants along the way. Rehiring or, you know, reskilling the public service and even deciding which parts that you want to reskill and where to apply the resources, I, I think is a, a complex and, you know, certainly multi-year and probably, well, definitely multi-term task. I'm not sure that frank and fearless advice was ever uniformly given, but I do think there has been a diminution of that frank and fearless advice and a lot of pressure to please in your advice and and make sure that you're doing what people want. Another area where reformers believe change is required is around independence, public service values and the provision of impartial advice. Andrew Podger is a former senior federal public servant and a former public service commissioner. 
He's now with the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Some of my former colleagues claimed that this was an issue of loss of character rather than of tenure, whereas I think, in fact, tenure has been an important factor in setting the incentive system within which the public servants operate. But I think even more important has been the change in the professionalisation of politics, the communications management, the role of ministerial advisors as apprentice politicians. All of that, I think, has has changed the, the way in which public servants provide their advice. In the Morrison government, you got a sense that they didn't really want policy advice in the first place. Uh, but uh, even where they were getting it, the question was whether it was designed to please rather than give authoritative and firm advice. Now, I suspect that a lot of departments still are doing that, but they are couching it in ways which are much less firm than they might have done in the past in case of, for example, material coming out under freedom of information, requirements that might embarrass the minister and the minister certainly doesn't want to be embarrassed. Looking ahead, what would be the priorities you would see for rebuilding a public service or strengthening a public service? You need a clearer alignment between ministers and the cabinet and the public service so there's clarification of what's expected of the public service, both in policy advising and in implementing programs, and getting that linking between public servants and their ministers and the cabinet right. Under the Morrison government, he had about 24 cabinet ministers and only 13 departments. So most departments had multiple ministers. In addition to that, a lot of those ministers had responsibilities not just in one portfolio, but in, in, in several portfolios, and the assistant ministers as well. That was a recipe for the public service not knowing who they should be advising and how and getting the proper system operating. It is totally different to the system that was set up under the Hawke and Keating governments and continued by the Howard government, which was to have a small or manageable cabinet, no more than about 20, and then most of those to have portfolio responsibilities where there was one portfolio minister, in which case, instead of 13 departments, you might have 16 or 17. But you could have then a clear alignment between the cabinet ministers and the portfolio departments, and the assistant ministers and permanent secretaries would have responsibilities for particular functions within a portfolio. And so you had a ministerial team working with a departmental secretary and an executive team, and you could make that work. That sort of clear alignment is really important to get the best out of the public service and the public service to work best with ministers. So I'd start with that. Flowing from that, you then need to have secretary appointments that are done in a better way than it is currently done. Now, there have been some improvements to ensure that the public service commissioner has some role in uh, secretary appointments. In my time as commissioner, I had no role other than in advising in the appointment of the head of prime minister's department. But the commissioner needs to have a an even firmer role, in my view, to be more clearly seen as the professional head of the public service. This is particularly important as governments and prime ministers tend to find somebody as head of the prime minister's department who they know and, and, and feel they can work with, even if that person isn't actually a political appointment. But what that means is the person is more clearly identified with a particular prime minister and when there's a change of government or a change of prime minister, you have real problems in the transition. 
we need a firmer public service commissioner as professional head of the service. My best model for this is the New Zealand model. There, the public service commissioner actually is the employer of departmental secretaries. Obviously, those appointments would be made in consultation with the prime minister and the relevant minister. But nonetheless, in that system, the public service commissioner is most clearly the head of the civil service and maintains its values. A further complication in the relationship between public servants and their ministers has been the rapid growth in private ministerial staff, political advisers. This was an issue acknowledged in a review of the Australian Public Service that was conducted by businessman David Thode and shelved by the former Morrison government in 2019. Here's Anne Tiernan, an adjunct professor of public policy at Griffith University in Brisbane. Look, I think the growth of the political office is probably the biggest institutional change of the last 30 years. And across Westminster-style systems like ours, it's described as the biggest constitutional challenge. And partly that's because the Westminster-style model assumes a career bureaucracy is a feature of our kind of constitutional system. Now, this third group of actors, the political advisers, you know, have grown and developed to meet the legitimate needs of ministers for more political advice, policy is one aspect of the work that they do. They do a whole range of other things as representatives and so on. So as local MPs, there's a whole multifaceted nature of their job. But the trouble is that political practice has gotten in front of the governance frameworks to deal with this. And the staffers, you know, have occupied this funny zone in which, you know, they, they aren't particularly accountable except through their minister who appoints them. So the theory is, to the extent that there is one, that staffers act on behalf of their minister and, you know, exercise delegated authority on their behalf. And that was probably tenable when a minister had 10 staff. But as staffs have become larger, you know, as the issues of concern have become, you know, being criticised by the media or something comes up and, and, you know, a minister doesn't want to be caught short in answering a question about it, they've very much, staffers themselves, become the main interface with the public service. And that creates tensions and difficulties because what is their accountability? How do we know they're acting on behalf of the minister? That's where officials find themselves between a rock and a hard place, right? They're getting instructions from the political side to do things that maybe are not what the rules say they ought to be doing, but it's very hard to resist that political pressure and very often it comes through political staff who don't face the same kinds of accountability and scrutiny as officials. That's the hard end. At the sort of more day-to-day end, just the mediation of the relationship through other people to busy ministers just mean, and particularly the um, being located up in, in Parliament House rather than meeting more regularly, just makes the development of a close trusting relationship, which is kind of the bedrock of that advisory arrangement, just makes that more difficult. And I think, you know, this is something that officials have been really concerned about. The 30 review of the public service federally came up with a number of recommendations around this that I expect the new government will pick up and look to deal with. The former government wasn't much interested. I mean, it's easy to look at the public service, the way it operates, and to talk about reform or to talk about streamlining it for the future. But it's it's more than just the public service, isn't it? It, it involves all of these other actors and institutions. That's right. And 40 or more years of public service reform have actually broadened the range of actors and interests who are engaged in public service provision. So that includes, you know, anybody who's being funded to run aged care or childcare or so, you know, 
NDIS, these players are now very much part of our delivery systems. So it's not only the officials who turn up day to day, you know, to work in public service departments. We're working with and through other partners to deliver services, to get the information and advice and insight that ministers might need. And there's been a real growth of, of sort of ad hoc advisory arrangements that ministers have have wanted to set up to get advice and insight. Well, how do those fit within the frameworks? So, you know, this is a challenge internationally. Everywhere people are looking at this whole capability issue of the public service, how the political and the administrative interface and what should be the ways in which public services are delivered in a more digital future, in a community that expects, you know, more personalised, efficient delivery in the way that they can with their bank or their, you know, private sector provider. So there's lots of pressure on governments to think about the public service, but it's a much broader entity than just those bureaucratic departments that sit in the administrative arrangements orders. So does the structure that we have, does it no longer make sense? I mean, do we need some kind of structure that incorporates all of these other entities, if that's possible? Well, people have been attempting to do this over a long period of time. So, you know, the system is vertical to the extent that the chain of accountability and appropriation is, you know, through the minister to parliament and down into portfolios to citizens. But also there's an enormous amount of horizontal coordination that needs to go on across government. And then there's, if you like, a more networked set of arrangements that have grown up around delivery systems where not-for-profit and private actors are involved, federal arrangements that involve Commonwealth and state and local and, you know, partners playing. as so, so we need to find ways of governing the networked parts of it. It's been difficult because of that overriding verticality in our integrity and, in, and accountability structures of responsible government that are, after all, our constitutional design. So people are, are finding ways of doing that. The New Zealand government has found some ways of doing doing that and others have experimented with it. So, so it's really just this more dynamic and distributed approach. Traditional public administration models were vertical and closed, really, you know, from the top to the bottom. That was how they were designed. And, yes, we need to evolve different ways, but don't underestimate the extent to which people are already doing that. And you particularly see that at the place level where people are doing place-based policies. We'll see it a lot in, in the economic transition, much more collaborative strategies, but, you know, they have to be made to fit within the fundamental architecture of our model. Anne Tiernan from Griffith University and before her, Andrew Podger, a former public service commissioner now at the ANU, the Australian National University. And if you're interested in reading exactly what the 30 Review concluded, you can find a link to the report on the Future Tense website. Finally today, to Ryan Androsov, who teaches digital leadership at the Institute on Governance, a think tank in Canada. He advises public sector organisations on how to adapt to the digital age. And he argues digital technologies could help make the public service in many countries far more decentralised and representative.
here in Canada, where we've got a kind of a federal government system, uh, I think in some ways, you know, similar to, to the system of government that you have in Australia, we have, you know, headquarters for a lot of government organizations are based here in the capital in Ottawa. Um, and while the in terms of sheer headcount, you know, about 60% of public servants work in the regions, regional offices tend to be much more operationally focused. And for a lot of years, if you wanted to work in policy roles, or work in kind of senior decision-making roles at headquarters, it meant you had to physically move to Ottawa. And that certainly puts a bit of a barrier in place for public servants or prospective public servants who are working out in different parts of the country. You know, in Canada's political history is we've got a, a long track record of kind of regional divides in terms of our politics in Canada. And that ability to ensure that Canadians, regardless of where they live, can participate in any job in government, I think is one of the real long-term benefits of this hybrid work model, that it doesn't require people to kind of physically have to relocate to the national capital, but they can still be part of their home communities, their home regions or provinces, and still be part of government in whatever capacity they wish to. And how do you ensure that everyone is treated equally, that we don't see public servants who are working remotely in regions, say, we don't see them being treated as second class because they're not there in, in headquarters. So I think this is the biggest challenge we face around the future of the workforce, particularly in this hybrid scenario that we're all kind of moving into, is that we don't wind up in a situation where we essentially have second class employees, where, you know, those who are in office, in person, get more airtime with senior management, get better promotional opportunities, have more access to information from, you know, the water cooler chats and the, and the discussions in the hallway. To be honest, I think the only way that you're able to get around that is it really requires leaders and managers to take a very disciplined approach to recognize that if you've got a hybrid workforce, you have to actually be very conscious about your interactions so that you're not setting up a scenario where people who are working primarily remotely aren't getting access to the same information, aren't part of the same discussions. And I would actually argue that part of what that means is is that leaders should also be working in a hybrid model as well. I think one of the dangerous scenarios is if you get into a scenario where all of the senior leadership of an organization are working in the office, and then you get a lot of people who are in more operational roles or more at the working level who are working remotely primarily, you get the real disconnect in terms of what their experiences in the workplace look like. And so I would actually advocate that if you are moving to a hybrid work model that everybody should be working in a hybrid model from the top of the organization on down. And I think if everybody's kind of living that same experience, it lets the organization as a whole be able to be on an equal footing and to be able to learn and grow and decide how to best find those new work patterns in this hybrid world. Rightly or wrongly, some people listening are going to be suspicious that this could possibly lead to cuts in funding for the public service, doing it in a much cheaper way. How do you ensure that that doesn't occur? And what is the risk of that occurring? 
So I don't necessarily think that moving to a, a hybrid type of work model has to lead to, to job reductions or to cuts. You know, I think if anything, what the last couple of years has shown us is that we're able to, in many ways, be as effective or more effective working in these new types of arrangements than they were before. And, and I would say that, you know, really kind of the positive side of this is that ability to attract and recruit and retain talent in a way that we haven't been able to before. Because I think this is actually kind of the real risk that government organizations are going to face that, you know, we've seen in the private sector, certainly in the tech sector, but I think beyond that within the private sector globally, a lot of companies have realized there are some real benefits to them to kind of maintaining a primarily remote workforce, you know, whether it comes with the reduction of physical real estate, whether it comes to their ability to tap into global talent, to make employees happier. And I think if governments kind of take a more traditionalist view on what the workplace looks like, they really risk losing their best and brightest. And they are going to be in a huge competition for talent that is now has options to be able to work globally in a way that just wasn't even practical three years ago. So I, I would actually make the argument that this is, you know, it's not necessarily just about kind of budget levels or cuts. It's about the ability for government to be able to remain relevant and attract and retain the kind of talent it's needs to be effective in the future. Ryan Androsoff from the Canadian think tank, the Institute on Governance. Also today on Future Tense, Anne Tiernan, Andrew Podger, James Riley and Ashina Mitsumi. And a simple way you can show your support for public service, well, my little piece of it at least, is by recommending this show and or leaving a review of Future Tense wherever you get your podcasts. Karen Savanovitz is my co-producer, I'm Anthony Fennell. Cheers. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.